You're about to experience filling the air with words. Version 2.0, honoring Jane Shannon, who co-created this conversational podcast. On the Zoom line is Anya Pearson, an award-winning actress, playwright, poet, producer, and she is an activist. So what else can you add to the description that I just gave, Anya? What a great question. I guess the important thing for this moment uh, and kind of what is cracking open in the country right now is that I want and um, have spent the better part of my life, even from um, pretty much from infancy, um, being interested in how I can be part of making the world better. Anecdotally, uh, when I was five in the Bay Area, my little pink birthday invitations said, presents are okay, but if you can get me peace in the Middle East, I will take that instead. When you were five? When I was five, yes. So that was the first goal for. My brain has always been wired to try to be a part of making the world better because I've always, even from the age of five, recognized some of the very dark and ugly parts of it that needed rearranging. When I started to write and to perform and to, to find out that the way that I was gonna be of best service to the world was through storytelling and through using storytelling as a mode of helping people to better understand themselves, but also to better understand the humanity of others, hopefully to decrease hate and to increase compassion and love. I kind of really found the way that I can be of the most service to helping to make the world a better place. Juneteenth is something that just recently, and I hate to admit this, jumped into my consciousness. You know, I'm a white guy, I'm privileged, you know, and I hadn't really heard of it. It's not like they taught us that in school in New Jersey. And so I started looking into it and I was stunned by how long ago what Juneteenth is based on happened. I had no idea of the story. And then I just kept going with it and finding out that it's a sacred day in the Black community. Your thoughts on why white culture, this is not something that we have generally paid much attention to. I'd like to hear about that, but I'd also like to hear any stories you might have about how your family recognized Juneteenth when you were growing up. First, I will say I am obsessed with history. In my life, I am on a quest to, to kind of uh, digest and, and swallow and absorb the history of the entire world. <laughs> Because, at least for my brain, when you understand the entirety of the shaping of the world, all the way back from the Middle Ages and even before then to this moment, you start to see like the pieces that have all led us to this exact moment in time. So side story, like one of my plays is in a festival right now. It's called The Killing Fields. And it's about the crack epidemic in East Oakland in the 1980s. And it's told through the ancient Greek myth of Agamemnon. The public reading where, where people can see the work we've been doing in the festival is on Juneteenth. In doing research for that play, um, I went down so many rabbit holes. I will say that like in working on it, it was astounding to me how many people I encountered that 
just had the thought that crack was a bad thing that happened to black people as if it happened in a vacuum without anything else uh, that like created that container in which it happened as if there was no kind of larger forces at work like as if the our government was not interested in quelching communism in latin america um, and destabilizing the region and thereby both trying to get rid of communism in latin america by flooding the communities of color in america with drugs and also how those things led to mass incarceration and the destabilization of latin america which have led us to this moment where our prisons are overflowing and vitriolic and xenophobic fear of immigrants coming across the border without being willing to reckon or hold the space for the complexity of how those regions got destabilized, which was through American foreign policy, right? So there's this kind of like way in which Americans in general, and also just the American consciousness tends to like forget about the ways that they're meddling tends to like cause uh, repercussions and ruptures and things that lead to problems around the globe and that that they conveniently then forget when it comes time to like reckon with the the consequences of those actions and secondarily our american system of teaching history tends to only teach from the perspective of the victor and so there are so many other like beautiful nuggets of history, of American history that were born of black traditions that over the years have been whitewashed and kind of like pushed to the side. And uh, one of the ones that I learned about this year that I didn't know that was so beautiful was that Memorial Day actually started in, in much the same way as Juneteenth. It was a holiday that was celebrating and commemorating the sacrifices made during the Civil War, which used to be called the Second Independence. And it was started by a bunch of Black soldiers. But again, as history is handed down, that story has been removed and it has become a much different type of holiday that we celebrate. And so that's just speaking a little bit to the fact that when you are the victor who writes down the history and writes down what is recorded of the events, you tend to exclude or whitewash or remove the parts that don't look favorably upon what you have done. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. And I've seen that recently with Lewis and Clark. You know, it's the same kind of of thing. And when you think about your experiences of Juneteenth, what comes to mind? I think about growing up in the Bay Area. I grew up in Berkeley, California, and they've had a a Juneteenth festival for 33 years now. Unfortunately, this year is canceled because of um, coronavirus. It was a neighborhood kind of feel where there were some performances and gathering of folks and like food and barbecue because um, from the original tradition of Juneteenth, it was about the celebration of freedom that took two years to reach all of the enslaved people. So parts of the original tradition that that has had a resurgence in recent years has been about the gathering and the celebration, gathering around food, and also uh, like the celebration and the tradition of dressing up because the people who were enslaved weren't even allowed. There were laws around what they could and couldn't wear in terms of like... (laughs) how much of a rag it had to be, uh, to be blunt. And so they're, they're part of the like culture of the holiday and of the tradition and creating this new space was about like 
putting on your 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 Sunday finest and like showing up and like what were you gonna wear because you know you wanted to look nice for for everybody else but also for yourself because there was honor in showing up and celebrating just the beauty of black people I mean that's one of the things that like I love most about our our people and our culture is especially in a town like Portland how how much it feeds my soul to be in a room of uh, just full of like the beautiful diversity of black people, which is hard to do in a, in a city like Portland and was not hard to do in the Bay Area because the Bay Area is so much more diverse. There was uh, like such a lovely diversity of, of all kinds of people in the Bay Area. And so. Could I follow up on when you said, especially in Portland? Mm-hmm. I would love to know why you said that. Because uh, Portland is the whitest major city in America. You know, it is a very homogenous city in terms of its racial makeup. There is a real hesitancy, especially um, among the kind of well-meaning white liberals of Portland to not discuss um, how incredibly racist of a history Portland has. I think that's starting to be more openly discussed now in this, more, in this moment of the protests and after the passing of George Floyd, after his murder, and this kind of national waking up all of a sudden to, to racism existing in mass. Um, but there were laws on the books in Oregon that this was a white utopia where people of color were not allowed to live. Um, and the, the ramifications of that are still being felt in the, the current racial makeup and, uh, and also current like socioeconomic makeup of Portland. You know, there were laws that said that you could not sell your house to a person of color. And there are still some deeds that some of the older houses in Portland have that still have that writing in them. So uh, there's a very dark and ugly history to Portland that I think a lot of people don't want to dive into and talk about because it's hard. And, and anytime that you're getting into the like minutia of this incredibly painful national trauma that we hold that is slavery that has never been unpacked fully, um, it's difficult. It's difficult for black people. It's difficult for white people. Um, it's, it's difficult for everyone involved. These are not easy conversations to have, I I think, especially for people like me. I have been doing a lot of work, personal work, on my own feelings about white supremacy, about white culture. And that's why I wanted to dive into this, because it is really super important for everyone to have a sense of the history, you know, beyond the history that we know. And Juneteenth to me is one of those things. You know, I knew about the Reconstruction, Jim Crow, all of that, but Juneteenth, it really is for the African-American community. It's like the 4th of July, right? And there is a movement apparently to make it a national holiday. Mm-hmm. And from what I've read, maybe 43 or 44 states have recognized it in some way. And here in Portland, and you probably know this, Multnomah County has made it a paid holiday for their county workers. But at the same time, we think about Juneteenth and then compare that to 
what's going to happen on July 4th or maybe what normally happens on July 4th. Yeah. It seems to me that it, it should be at that level of celebration. Yes. In my book, I think it should. I think that, like, unfortunately, uh, until we investigate in mass some of the more deep-seated, entangled or, or um, coexisting issues that go around why um, Juneteenth isn't celebrated in mass the way July 4th is, I don't think we'll get there. And, and, you know, that, like, to me, that harkens back to, you know, these conversations that are happening right now, where the immediate response to Black Lives Matter for some people is, well, all lives matter. And there's no stopping and meditating on why, why that in and of itself is problematic. You know, because the the point of Black Lives Matter is that, because of course all lives matter. Of course, every human life has value, right? We can get into a side conversation about this moment and coronavirus and like the personal devastation I feel for all of the lives that are being lost and just the devastation I feel as a human being watching all of this global death that we've just kind of moved on from. Because all lives matter. <laughs> but at the same time, saying that we as Black people want to finally be acknowledged as a whole person instead of the three-fifths of a human being that was written into the actual like national documents of the founding of this country and for us to like actually have a reckoning with the fact that the systems of government that were established in this country always always said in their very fiber that black people were less and that there's still huge swaths of people in this country that walk around and operate with that assumption and most of them are carrying guns in police forces right until we kind of go through all of that and unpack the part of this other narrative which is that asking for us to be safe walking down the street somehow makes us unpatriotic right and then that gets tied into the whole fourth of july debate um, there's just so much to unpack and peel back, I think, before we get to the place where Juneteenth gets to have its full day on the stage in the way that July 4th does. When you look at the police brutality and all of the issues with George Floyd, and it really does seem that his murder has brought a lot of people together. In my life, I've seen this happen before. Martin Luther King, obviously. And there was a lot of momentum for change. A lot of things got done. This seems to have something that really can take hold. Are you optimistic? I am cautiously optimistic. I think that with knowledge uh, comes also the burden of that knowledge. And I mean that for myself, right? Because I am looking at the larger picture. So like you mentioned Martin Luther King. And so there, yes, there was a lot of change that happened after his death. Um, and the needle moved in some ways in a way that it hadn't previously uh, around Jim Crow and a lot of the things that were happening in that era in terms of like blatantly open, violent racism, subjugation of black people and um, denying of their civil liberties and rights. But what also happened when that needle moved is there were a lot of behind the scenes things that started happening. 
And, um, you know, one of the other plays that I wrote last year, I did a lot of research and deep diving into kind of what came out of that behind the scenes fear of, oh no, you know, black people are starting to ask for their rights. And I'm, I'm being a little facetious, but that's kind of how I just have to like move through the world sometimes is that there was a whole section of the Republican party led and funded in part by the Koch brothers who kind of spun off and said, the way that we need to fix this is by destabilizing the government as much as we can. There's some really beautiful books um, and some very beautiful historians and sociologists who have done a lot of research and can articulate this far better than I can in this moment. But like, if you unspool the thread of while the needle was moving publicly and the Voting Rights Act was passed and and, um, the Civil Rights Act was passed, behind the scenes, there was a whole bunch of nefarious, for lack of a better word, but that's actually the one I want to use, men who got together and said, oh no, you know, they're getting a piece of the pie and we want the pie all for ourselves. So what are the things that we can do to take the pie back? And you can really actually trace the lineage of all of their actions behind the scene directly to the election of Donald Trump. And so in a way, I'm optimistic about what's happening, but in other ways, I am, I am hopeful that enough of us will rise up and say no more but I am also still nervous of corporations being people and this idea that the corporations still get a louder voice than human beings. I'd like to get your reaction to this. One of the conversations that I've had recently, you mentioned Trump, so I have to. Um, (laughs) You remember his draining the swamp thing? Well, I think he's done that, and what's in the swamp are all the characters that he's had in his cabinet, whatever. And so we're seeing, you know, what you just talked about, all the the behind-the-scenes stuff that was going on during the civil rights movement was not seen by the public. Now it's, thanks to him, in a way, it's yeah. all out in the open. You watch all of the people. See, I said we weren't going to do this, but I think it's important because you see all of the people who he has surrounded himself with. They're like at a central casting for a mob film, yeah. right? So I say all that wondering if you think it's a good thing that there is more exposure to what's really going on than there's ever been. And that includes media coverage, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know is my short answer because people don't seem to be as outraged. Like I I have conversations with people in my circle and we all seem to be equally outraged, but yet like I, I feel like something has happened that has fundamentally broken journalism too, uh, like in terms of the way that like these things get covered, you know, whatever, I'm just going to say it. I think reality television has a lot to do with that. And social media has a lot to do with that in terms of like lowering the bar of like American intelligence and just like our attention span. I cannot tell you how many people I run into on it on a like normal basis who, who don't read, who like, And and I don't mean like reading an article on Medium on your phone. I mean, who don't read books, like who don't continue to educate themselves. Um, And, you know, it's a whole other side conversation to talk about how like 
people are trying to destabilize the public education system. Um, but like, I, I think that there's some really sad stuff that's happening in terms of like, just Americans being dumber or more, I, I apologize, that sounds really elitist of me, but it's true in a way in terms of like, just the expectations being so low that like, he's doing all this stuff and everyone's like, well, you know, what can we do? Cause I'm just like, uh, I, I like, I don't even, I was doing a play where I was looking for protest songs and there were so many. I remember when uh, W first got elected, people were so outraged. Like every other artist was writing a protest song about how dare we have this guy as our president. And then like the 45 got elected and I'm like, where are all the songs? Like no one, everyone's just like, what can we do? We've, we've lost, the world is over. I, I don't know what's been broken in the last like few years, even before, you know, the global pandemic, like where people are just, yeah, I don't, I like, I, I don't know. And I, I recognize that I was really lucky in my public school education. Cause I am a public school kid, but like, from like third grade, my teachers were like, don't trust anything just because you read it in a book. Don't trust anything because I tell you, like, go do your own research, you know, but, but I grew up in Berkeley. So like we, we had International Women's Day in the 90s. That was a day off we had from school. And we, ce we celebrated Indigenous People's Day. There was no Columbus Day. So I feel like in a lot of ways, we were way ahead of the curve. In terms of them preparing me to be the, the adult citizen of the world that I am. When I read at the beginning of our conversation, your bio, and you specifically said activist, what does that mean to you? I think it means a lot of things and a, a lot of different things on any given day. As a storyteller, I am always interested in telling the stories of the people who are pushed to the margins of society or told they don't matter or told that they are voice or their story or their personhood doesn't matter. And so I have dedicated my career to lifting up those people and those stories. I spent a lot of my life being one of those people. And so I feel like having come out the other side of, of some really dark and horrible like stuff, violence and, and tragedy, um, it's important for me to speak that into the world. Uh, to give hope to other people. And it's also important to me to continue to be a voice and an advocate for people who either are still trying to find their voice or who have systemically or personally or through abuse been told that their voice doesn't matter. Um, so those are the stories that I write. And then for me, activism is sewn into the way that I work as an artist and so there's always the show like the play that I write and then the second piece is the activism that happens after the play it's built into the way that I expect my work to be done and I always call the theater out on it when they don't do it um, and then uh, revolutionarily because even though it shouldn't be I expect in the more power I get in the world as an artist I expect everybody who works on one of my plays to be treated humanely and with respect and for there to be a culture of care, especially for anybody who is a non-cis white male, you know? So to, to create a space where women and artists of color um, feel cared for and respected and allowed to practice their art form safely, um, unfortunately, that is a revolutionary act because we spend so much of our time walking through the world 
um, looking over our shoulders or having to apologize or having to shrink or having to like have our guard up for the threats or the the racist remark or the you know sexist remark and so being a voice for just creating space for people to just be unapologetically themselves in art is unfortunately revolutionary and so there's a lot of conversations happening right now that have spilled out of George Floyd's murder and out of this moment of Black Lives Matter about how do we change art to make it a more equitable and also a more inclusive art form. Yeah, and then I talk a lot about just in my life and in my practice and in the world, holding space for allowing people to see themselves reflected in my work, but also helping them kind of as a conduit of processing and um, moving through some of the stuff that they recognize in my work and, and helping them on their journey. Let's say I owned a theater and I came to you and I said, Anya Pearson, I would like you to write a play about right now. Have you given any thought to an idea like that, given what's been going on? Yes, and. <laughs> uh, so um, at the moment, uh, I am working on about five different projects. Um, so uh, there is the, the play that is having a reading this Friday. Though it is set in the 80s, um, feels so incredibly relevant to this moment because it is about a neighborhood being ravished um, by violence and outside forces, but also kind of how that affects this one particular family and, and how they deal with that and deal with the, the violence and the loss as a result. And then I'm writing my first collection of poetry, and that talks a lot about, I'm a survivor of uh, rape, and so it talks a lot about dealing with ongoing trauma and how the, the PTSD is rising up in this moment and being activated by all of the national and global things that are going on, but just that kind of lifelong journey that a survivor goes on um, and speaking into the space um, to speak to other survivors, but also speaking about kind of a meditation on language and how language is sometimes able to, to get at what you mean and sometimes it fails you the way that your body feels divorced from you or you know what trauma does to wreak havoc on the mind and the body. And then in August, I am... Part of, I'm going to be part of a, a virtual season uh, from a collective out of Chicago called Black Lives, Black Words. And for that play, um, I'm going to be looking at not specifically uh, Breonna Taylor, but Breonna Taylor in, um, in the context of this moment and how George Floyd is getting so much more coverage than Breonna Taylor is. And so kind of the, the historical lineage of how Black women get so much less than anyone else. And so those are kind of the three. Oh, and then because we talked about sports a little bit, I'm writing a sports pilot also. So those are the like four projects that I'm wow. carrying wow. at the moment. <laughs> Can we talk about Brianna Taylor a little bit? Because that was something, and it's obviously this is all super sensitive and, and hard to talk about. When I read her story, it was so tragic what yeah. happened to her. And then, obviously, the same for George Floyd, just so tragic. The difference between the two, I've thought, is his got captured on video. Hers didn't. 
but you brought up another layer to that about her being a black woman and him being a black man. Can you go into that at all? Sure. Yeah. I think, um, forgive me for not knowing the, the original source of this quote. Cause I, I always like to, you know, attribute quotes to the original source but i remember very a very long time ago someone kind of laid it out in terms of the hierarchy um and how this is um, i think of the civil rights movement so there is kind of taking it back to historical context uh during civil rights there was kind of this fraction that was happening for black women between um fighting for women's rights um and fighting for black rights during civil rights and the hierarchy is that you know white men were at the top and then white women, uh, and then black men, and that black women were at the very bottom. And um, just for the purposes of this interview, I am acknowledging that that is leaving out um, many other uh, ethnicities and races from the consideration, and I see all of you, um, but I'm speaking specifically of the context of the dynamics between black and white races. And so I think that, again, the historical implications never fully being unpacked there is still even within the dynamics of racism in this country more value placed on black male lives than black female lives i mean that rips my heart out saying as a black woman but um if we look at like the trajectory of of when someone loses their life and it, it gets some national attention in a, in a police shooting kind of context like we remember Trayvon Martin and we remember Eric Garner and they got a lot more attention than Sandra Bland did. Um, and so there have been, there have been over the like scope of this movement times when we have shouted for justice for the men in a much larger voice than we have shouted for justice for the women. And that is left over, I think from some of the really awfully psychologically damaging parts of slavery that were not explored. And I don't mean that to say that like we're suffering from slave mentality. I mean that there were many aspects of the brutality of slavery that have not been unpacked in terms of how that generational trauma has been handed down to everyone involved, the descendants of the slave owners and the descendants of the enslaved. Um, in terms of who has the most value and who doesn't. And I, um, it's, it's heartbreaking. Thank you for that. I'd never thought of any of what you just said, which is what I'm, I'm learning that there's, even at my age, there are still things I can learn. Any other thoughts about Juneteenth and how it relates to all of what we've been talking about? I think doing research uh, if you don't know about it, is a great place to start. I will offer up this. This is something that I do every 4th of July to honor the legacy of my ancestors. There's a Frederick Douglass quote from one of his more famous speeches that starts, what to the American slave is the 4th of July. I think I just paraphrased that a little bit, so forgive me, the spirit of Frederick Douglass. He really unapologetically says, what is this holiday to us? We are not free. So how dare you celebrate the independence of this country when you have people who are enslaved who live in this country? And how dare you say this is the land of the free and that there is justice and liberty for all? 
when we don't have justice or liberty. And it is one of the most powerful quotes. And he was such an eloquent man. And every year since I was in, in probably like 15, I have read that on the 4th of July. And I'm excited that my daughter is maturing so fast that I'm going to be able to help uh, for her to be a part of that tradition that I've had for so long now. But I would encourage people, um, regardless of your ethnic makeup, to take a look at that. And whether you read that on Juneteenth or you read that and have a moment of like genuine reflection on the 4th of July with that quote or, or another quote by a incredibly profound African-American thinker. There are ways to start unpacking this legacy um, for yourself and for all of us. Anything else you can think of that's, you, you, you've shared so much and I can't thank you enough for that, but I always like to give people that I'm lucky enough to talk with uh, the opportunity. Is there, this is the ultimate open-ended question. <laughs> totally. Um... I guess I will also say um, if you are looking for a way to to be a part of the change that is taking place, but you are not able to actively go out and protest, I and uh, a couple of my dear friends are leading a virtual protest or a virtual opportunity for you to add your voice in support of the change and in support of what's taking place. I am not able to be out because I'm immunocompromised. And so... I wanted to do something to add support, but also to give other people a chance to do so if for whatever reason you're not able to be out, um, if you have kids or if you're taking care of a loved one. I wrote a poem, a, a spoken word poem about police brutality and the legacy of its origins. And we're just asking people if they're interested or moved by it to record a section or the whole poem, whichever you know you want to. And then tag the numerous organizations that are doing really great work in both Minneapolis and around the country, or just give some money, give a donation to to the organizations that are helping to bring about actual change. So is there a specific website, Facebook page that people can go to to find out more about that? Yes. Uh, the best place is probably a uh, dear collaborator of my name, uh, Dean Walker. It, um, he's a choreographer out of New York. Um, He has a blog called Sidelight, and um, I am a frequent contributor on the blog. And so when when everything started to kind of really come to come to a head in in Minneapolis, he asked me uh, if I would do something to speak to what was going on there. And we we decided to take it and and turn it into kind of a, a virtual call to action. And so the text of the poem can be found on his website and then also a video of me uh, doing it, and then a list of the organizations that you can support, both specifically in Minneapolis and then some of the more national organizations. And then there also are a list of organizations here in Portland um, who are doing some great work here in town. And we're happy for you to tag any of them, all of them, and just tag us with a video um, and help to help to get some visibility for those organizations and, and um, hopefully some more monetary support for the work that they're doing. So. It is less about me. It is more about continuing to prop up and shine light on those organizations and the work that they're doing. And how does, you said Zide light. How does one? Zide light, like 
light on the side. Oh, side light. Yeah. I guess it must be the Zoom connection made the <laughs> the S sound like a Z. Yeah. So it's S-I-D. I just want to make sure that our listeners can know yes. exactly where to go. So it's S-I-D-E-L-I-G-H-T. Side light. So S-I-D-E-L-I-G-H-T by B-Y A-D-I-N W-A-L-K-E-R dot com. Sidelight by Adeen Walker. And since that's a pretty long handle, um, I will, after we get off the, the interview today, I'll put a link to it on my website because my website is just anyapearson.com. So that All might right. be a little simpler. anyapearson.com. A-N-Y-A-P-E-A-R-S-O-N dot com. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I'm really, really uh, humbled and appreciative of, of you taking the time to, to talk with me. Thank you, too. It's been uh, lovely talking with you again. We close out our time with Anya Pearson with her powerful poem she talked about in our interview. Here's Anya reading What It Is and What It Isn't. What It Is and What It Isn't by Anya Pearson. One, this is not a Facebook rant. People in positions of authority, listen up. Don't speak over me, listen. The average American, the silent majority, if you voted for tr listen up. Looking down your nose at those of us weighed down by the injustice of a criminal justice system that works unjustly is not just, does not justly represent black men, brown men, impoverished citizens who cannot afford the best counsel corporations can afford. When did us versus them, justice, just us versus them become corporations versus men? When did it become impossible to get justice as a little man, an individual man, common man, David versus Goliath man? We're not going to win. System rigged, deck stacked against us, man. There is no denying we dying. Behind bars, in police cars, in the streets, cops knees in our backs yelling, we can't breathe, hands up, why you stopping me? Please don't shoot, what did I do? We are dying. Lying in pools of blood for hours in the streets while cops, cowards, planting guns to justify their bias with departmentally backed lies. Congratulatory high fives, internal reviews, walls that bleed blue, a no snitching policy that means their silence is more valuable than the truth. I had to shoot him. We shoot to kill. What else was I supposed to do? When will we stop letting us versus them, just us versus them, become a license to kill based on the racial difference among men? Officially sanctioned, governmentally sanctioned, presidentially sanctioned homicide. The government lies. Check the historical ties. Trace the lineage of the lies directly back to the founding white guys. They divide and conquer, separate and attack, spew alternative facts to distract us from the truth. But listen close, run that back. We are dying. We are dying in modern day detention camps. Let's, let's be real, concentration camps at the borders. People desperate for a better life, criminalized and stripped of their rights for having the courage to flee the instability perpetrated by American foreign policy. Refugees fleeing violence, just trying to get by and survive, give their kids a better life. ICE swoops in and locks them up, private prisons making big bucks. Kids and babies living in squalor, ripped away from their mothers and fathers. Corporations congratulate each other. Another day in service of the almighty dollar. 
The system is broken. A token for your consideration. We are dying. Two, the answer is not a sign in your front yard. Behind bars, in police cars, in the streets, used to be they string us up from the trees. Cops knees in our back, yelling, we can't breathe. My hands are up. Why you stopping me? Please don't shoot. What did I do? We are dying, lying in pools of blood for hours in the streets while cops planting guns to justify their bias with departmentally back lies. We shoot to kill. What else am I supposed to do? A no snitching policy that means their silence is more valuable than the truth. Our truth. Officially sanctioned homicide, internal reviews, walls that bleed blue, they call it justified, but it's still homicide. The system is broken, a token for your consideration. Three, this is not a performative act of wokeness. Malcolm said the gifts of the constitution weren't meant for us. Citizenry was an illusion never meant to be gifted to us. No justice, no peace. The American dream is a Ponzi scheme, never meant to trickle downstream from the ruling elite to you and me. No justice, no peace. It's just us speaking up to end the injustice we see that threatens our shared humanity. None of us are free if we can't all love openly. No justice, no peace. The American dream is a Ponzi scheme, never meant to trickle downstream from the ruling elite to you and me. The doctrine a concoction to distract the huddled masses. We will not take your lashes. The powers that be never meant for any of us to be free. No justice, no peace. It's just us. Just you and me, whether you look like them or you look like me. The American dream is a Ponzi scheme, never meant to trickle downstream. They never meant for any of us to be free. The legacy of our ancestry, stolen from our homeland, brought in bondage to this land, from slavery to Jim Crow, the fear of black upward mobility continues to grow, to criminalizing our fight for civil rights. So they can lock us behind bars or shoot us from cop cars and call their implicit bias justified. No justice, no peace, no more racist police. The legacy of our shared ancestry is that the powers that be, the founding fathers never meant for any of us to be free. No more racist politicians who never actually listened to what the people want. No more politicians bearing witness to the wrong side of history, straying from morality, denying their humanity, preserving the fragility of their own white male insecurity clinging to the bullshit myth that the wealthy elite deserve more than the poor. Hiding behind dog whistle phrases, lazy coded messaging, inflaming the race-based hate of the silent majority, other white males frustrated by their own lack of authority. No more politicians on missions of emphasizing, aggrandizing, demonizing our supposed difference. They keep us at war with each other over who has been the most mistreated. So that we don't notice their greed, egregious misdeeds, where this is all going to lead, their phallic need for unlimited, unchecked power. That all these active shooters have white supremacy creeds. That that guy can't even fucking read. That they all force feed their talking points to people who already agree. That responsible journalism has officially died along with common sense. This is my plea for a return to sanity. The system is broken, a token for your consideration. Let's rise up and build a new nation, one that actually works to uplift and empower everybody. Choosing love over hate, let's repatriate justice, equality, and peace. Let's burn down the motherfucking patriarchy. No justice, no peace.
You've been listening to Filling the Air with Words, version 2.0. Find us on Facebook, SoundCloud, and Twitter. Dedicated to the life and memory of our friend Jane Shannon. 